Uh, you ready to rock and roll? Yeah, whatever you want to do, man. All right, let's just do softball question after softball question. <laughs> what caused God? Yeah. What? How do you spell God? <laughs> <laughs> man, I would I would appreciate it because as you can imagine, uh, with the book launch, I've just been nonstop over the place with just and most of the interviews are. Uh, you know, like radio shows and stuff like that. So they're they're very basic, but a few of them have been really good and, and really in depth Sweet. too. So Sweet. This one will be I don't know. Uh, whatever Let's you go. want to do, man. Any direction you want to take it. Let's just let's jam. All right. We always have Mark. Get set. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Out podcast. Today we are joined by a guest who needs no introduction. And we'll just Wait. leave it at that, I suppose, right? <laughs> Maybe I should have given some introduction. All right. His name is Pat Flynn. He's written a book. It is called The Best Argument for God. Poof. Boom. There we go. I uh, always I always have to clarify that it isn't me saying it's a good argument. For all we know, the, be, the best could be very bad, right? It's just outrun the uh, outrun the philosophical bear, right. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, good old father Gregory Pine described writing his dissertation as very similar to bleeding out of every orifice of one's head <laughs> yeah yes right yeah fantastic uh-huh. visual mm-hmm. and really helped to clue me into uh, the process so how would you best describe the process of uh, finishing up this year book well i i don't think i can top the very good father gregory's description there i mean that that really summarizes it this book was extremely painful uh if you saw my beard before and after the book you'll notice it's a lot it's a lot more gray um, but it was a good pain. It was the pain I, I guess would, I, I can't really speak from experience, but comes with sort of labor pains. I guess we can ask our wives around that, but my wife always tells me that it's a transformative pain. And I think that's the case with writing a book like this, right? It really stretches you, especially since this book covers so much territory. There were certain aspects of the book, Jake, that, you know, I had like a decent familiar familiarity with, but definitely had not, um, done the the hardcore specialization yet so uh it 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 required a lot of me it was a ton of work not just the research but you know actually putting it all together and the whole purpose of this book is i know you know uh was to try and fill a gap uh kind of at that middle level right so uh, i know uh, i know we've talked about this before but uh, other people have complained that at least when it comes to philosophy of god books or even apologetics books there's just this kind of gap where you have a lot of stuff that's very superficial. Uh, it either doesn't go deep or it just gets things wrong or it just kind of caricatures the opposition. Uh, or you have the academic work where there's a lot of actually really good, brilliant stuff happening. I think positive stuff happening for the classical theist, but it's totally inaccessible for most people um, just because it's you know done by professional philosophers or behind a paywall or people don't even know it exists or, or whatever. And it, it strikes me that there's not a whole lot of stuff in the middle. There's a few exceptions, um, but they are a few exceptions. So I, I felt that we could do more kind of to promote that solid middle brow effort. Uh, but that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. I struggled a lot um, with, with presentation, with tone, with accessibility, the book, underwent extensive rewrites as all my books do. I always write all my books over completely like two or three times before they come out. Maybe that's just me not being very good at it. Um, but that's, that's always part of the process. But at the end of the day, I'm very happy with the final product. I'm very happy with how it turned out. So all the pain was transformative. It was worth it for me. That anyway. is 
good to hear. So what do you, what would you say is the hardest section to put into words? I mean, there's plenty of times where I'm writing something or trying to put a podcast together and I'm like, I know this concept. And then as I break it down, I'm like, no, I don't. Not with any clarity. Yeah. So well, where were the brick walls that you were kind of bashing your head against as you were putting it together? Oh, dude. Uh, well, the hardest would be the section that I didn't even succeed in getting in the book. Finally, it was trying to articulate Barry Miller's approach to God. And I had in the um, earlier version, I had two cosmological arguments. I had the one that's still in there uh, that I'm very happy with how that turned out. But then I, I had a full development of uh, what I think is Barry Miller's very creative philosophical approach to God. But it's so technical and it requires so much uh, metaphysical stage setting. And dang, man, I tried and tried and went back and forth with the editor. And I think like, I got a good presentation of it, but it was just so much. It was so many extra words, right? <laughs> that at the end of the day, uh, we made the executive decision to just cut it out because we didn't feel that it was strictly necessary. If anything, it was kind of uh, icing on the cake anyways. Um, and that, you know, you really would have had to have a, a reader who was deeply, deeply interested in this type of metaphysical reasoning to God to want to slog through something like that. So what we decided was to, to, to remove it. But what I'm doing for anybody who wants it is if they pre-order the book or even just order it, uh, I have the kind of the, the director's cut, if you will, and in the director's cut are uh, really uh, it's a bunch of extra material. But one of one of the things I'm including is that original section on Barry Miller's argument to God. Uh, so that was definitely the, the most difficult because at the end of the day, it it, it, it got cut um, next next to that uh, would probably be the section on the problem of evil, because the problem of evil, it's not that it's not that I don't think we have a good answer to it. It's just that there's so many components uh, to the problem of evil that I think provide um, the theistic solution uh, and trying to distill that and trying to synthesize it into a chapter uh, I found to be an almost impossible project. It really deserves a book. Um, and perhaps at some point I'll write that book. So I did the best I could and I, I hope it's enough to serve the purposes of my project, but I would say that that was number two in terms of difficulty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I do encourage people to, uh, find that director's cut. I know that like many podcasters, um, we are inundated with people who want a defense of, uh, the statement that no non-contradictory, non-elliptical construals of atomic sentences of the form A exists. Um, they want that defended back. And, so, and it, I mean, I mean that's the place what could be a better pickup line? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Single men, single ladies. I think you should latch on to that one. It's going to weed people out fast, but um, <laughs> I think you'll be interested to see who's left. <laughs> yeah. So if you really want to nerd out on, you know, the, the, the sort of Thomistic metaphysics that I think provides a very powerful path to God and, and Jake, you've, you've read that stuff. I, I know I've sent you that stuff. Oh um, yes. And made the thumper, the rabbit. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's, re and released it. So, and yeah. it's, it's not just, it's not just a director's cut. I am doing other stuff with that material as well, which, at some point or, or later, hopefully will become, will come into public awareness, but that's, that's what it is right now. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Problem of evil stuff. I mean, that's endlessly fascinating. And one of the problems is there's like, I don't know, probably 10 fairly good, some better than others approaches you can take to the very same question. Yes. Of which kind of just, I mean, I mean, that just tangles you up fast. It, it, you know, this is, this is the case with, um, 
I think a lot of issues, if you want to call it that, when it comes to metaphysics, philosophy of God, and objections to either the existence of God or arguments for the existence of God. It's not that we lack solutions. Sometimes it's that we have an abundance of options of how to respond. And it's trying to decide which route we want to take and which best coheres with everything else that we've been arguing for so far, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. Yes, indeed. So what, let's change gears a little bit instead of all of the uh, frustrating and uh, dismal experiences. Well, dude, I appreciate you allowing the... me to let the steam pressure out of my spleen here. This is very therapeutic. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know how your gastrointestinal system works with steam in your spleen, but <laughs> I wish you the best with that one. Uh, what did you think you nailed? What What are the sections you're most proud of? Yeah, well, I'm, I am very happy with you know, for, all right, let me let me back up because people are like, what the heck are these people talking about? Anyways, they, assuming you don't have the book. Um, what? They don't have the book? Yeah. What is wrong with you? Let listeners? me just go give... buy his book now. Well, thank you, Jake. I appreciate the endorsement. Maybe we could. They don't listen to me, but it's fine. Entice them a little bit. So let me just kind of <laughs> discuss what the book is about in general and how it's laid out. And then we can try and circle back to your question, which I'm sure I'll forget by the time I finish, <laughs> finish rambling here. So it's called The Best Argument for God. And I actually do think it's a good argument. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's a convincing one. Um, but it sort of takes its inspiration, of course, uh, well, from a number of different places. But Thomas Aquinas is one of them, because if you go to his, his nice little summa and you look at his section on the existence of God and you look at the objections he presents to the existence of God, there's only two. And this is this is a curious feature because Aquinas is usually the kind of guy who's like, hey, here's 47 old objections to this weird position I'm going to advance. Now let's go through each of them. But when it comes to not a think a very weird position, but a very big and important one, which is does God exist? He only presents those two, at least in the Summa. And one of them is the problem of evil, right? We've talked about that before. We can talk about it again later if we want. I have a whole section of the book on that. Uh, but it's the other one that that really sort of fascinated me one because i have a personal history with it back when i was a, a a naturalist myself i probably would have thought that this was one of the reasons i was a naturalist and that reason is that naturalism can explain it all right the principles of nature are enough you don't need god to make sense of anything uh which of course is not uh, a disproof of god uh but it's it's sort of a reason to prefer a naturalistic worldview. So in contemporary form, the argument say, might say something like this. Hey, if two theories explain just as much, believe the simpler theism and atheism or metaphysical naturalism, they explain the same amount. They're on an explanatory part. However, naturalism is simpler. So let's just go with that, right? That's sometimes how it's presented in contemporary form. So the purpose of this book is not only to break that argument, but to reverse it. So my thesis is, is this. It's, it's hey, guys, look, uh, naturalism can only explain some, but not all of what classical theism can when it is strapped with vastly greater complexity. So believe theism. And then what I do is kind of line up all the explanatory targets that I think are generally pretty well agreed upon by people that, yeah, these are things that we want a worldview to explain. Things like contingency, consciousness, uh, morality, um, semantic content, rationality, and then even suffering and evil. And add order and stability is another one. And, the, and then, you know, each sort of section or chapter of the book is making the case that uh, either theism is the only conceivable explanation of this large scale feature of reality, or minimally, it's the better and simpler explanation, right? So that's, 
that's the project of the book. And then it's kind of laid out. Uh, it, it deploys two distinct methodologies. And this might be interesting to, to talk about because when it comes to kind of philosophizing about God, Jake, as you know, and I'm sure as many of your listeners know, there's, there's, there's different ways of going about it. Uh, there's many ways of going about it, I suppose, but there's two that have always sort of grabbed my interest. One is the old school approach, the approach of metaphysical demonstration. And that's when you've got this metaphysician sort of frolicking out in the field, carving reality at its joints, right? And then saying, hey, there's there's certain features of the world that are not, you know, intrinsically completely intelligible. They don't explain everything about themselves from within themselves. So they're always kind of pointing out to some sort of necessary condition for their existence or occurrence. And then once you kind of do your philosophical magic on those certain features, whether it's change or compositeness or contingency, uh, the arguments lead you to some sort of transcendent foundation that escapes all those categories that would have to be the necessary condition for any of those things to exist or occur. And, you know, so if you, you kind of follow out the argument from change, you get to something that's unchanging. If you follow out the argument from compositeness, you get to something that's absolutely ontologically simple. If you follow out the argument from contingency, you get to this necessary reality. And the nice thing is these are different metaphysical paths, but they all sort of converge upon the same, you know, fundamental classical theistic conclusion. The eternal, immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good, um, uh, divine being. Right. Okay. So that's that's one approach. And philosophers through the ages have suggested that that is a sort of demonstration or a proof, if you want to call it that, insofar as we're starting from like a really, really secure starting place, some sort of basic, if not undeniable fact of experience, like that change occurs or that things have parts or that some things are contingent. Maybe not completely unassailable, but like it's going to cost you a pretty penny to to wiggle out of these commitments. Right. And then we're supposed to kind of proceed deductively to the conclusion. So it's supposed to give us a very high degree of confidence, if not the closest we can get to certitude of, of God's existence. Right. So that's that's one approach. Um, call that the traditional approach. And a lot of cosmological arguments kind of fall into that camp. The other approach is sort of this worldview comparison approach where we use, you know, inference to the best explanation. And what we're doing there is we kind of craft a worldview hypothesis. We kind of craft the theistic hypothesis. Um, and we say, here's our hypothesis. And, and this is kind of its the, the root features of this hypothesis. Now let's go out and see what this hypothesis predicts and explains compared to some uh, rival hypothesis generally being a, the naturalistic one, right? And then you kind of get in this, into this comparison of the theoretical virtues, the biggest one being explanatory comprehensiveness. How well does your hypothesis anticipate certain data uh, that a worldview hypothesis needs to make sense of? You know, things like, you know, morality and consciousness and fine tuning and the moral dimensions, stuff like that, compared to its rival, um, and then, you know, the, the argument kind of goes on and along along those lines. And then if you think that the, these things are kind of equal, then you need to turn towards uh, considerations of simplicity, uh, which which theory is simpler. But what does that even mean? Like, wh like, what sort of simplicity are we talking about? Ontological, theoretical, ideologically, that ideological simplicity, these things are all very complicated. And like, where does it matter? And I, I discuss all that in the book that, you know, ontological and theoretical simplicity are of, of most interest to us and they matter, matter most on the fundamental level. And of course, I'm arguing that classical theism has uh, a, an enormous advantage actually on the sim simplicity front. But anyway, so long story short, 
uh, Jake, as you know, and as many of your gentle, gentle listeners are probably aware, when it so comes what yeah, so the gentlest when it comes to philosophers, they're kind of like in one camp or the other in terms of methodology. If you're kind of a traditional guy, you don't like this worldview comparison business. You kind of think it's too weak, it's too flimsy, it's too prone to, uh, dare we say, theistic personalism, right? Of just like giving us a, a very poor conception of the divine. Um, and it's also, you know, um, conceding too much, they might say, to the naturalist, right? Like, what didn't you understand about demonstration, son, is the line you might get from that camp, right? <laughs> Whereas uh, these other philosophers, and, you know, you might think of Richard Swinburne as one sort of representative example of somebody who doesn't take the traditional approach but goes in for more of this worldview comparison, would, you know, uh, return uh, with uh, saying, well, look, you know, guys, your metaphysical demonstrations, right, they, they okay, they are running off certain assumptions that aren't completely unassailable or they have certain background metaphysical commitments that certainly aren't neutral or, or what have you. So you've got your work cut out for you too. Um, it's not as quick and clean and convenient as you make it seem. Uh, so my approach actually has uh, advantages and will appeal to more contemporary scientific minded people who like this sort of mode of hypothesis testing anyways. Right. So I always thought, well, this is silly. Why are we, why are we putting these, you know, these methods against each other when they can clearly play well together. Let's, let's run the traditional arguments. I think they're very forceful. But the cool thing about starting with a traditional argument is it actually gives you a pretty well-formed conception of the divine. It gives you a hypothesis that you can then go out and test, right? Against, without just kind of, you know, just kind of like constructing it out of thin air, the, the traditional metaphysical approach really shapes your theistic hypothesis, right? And it's kind of root or core commitments in a very principled way. And then you can just kind of say, okay, um, I thought that that was pretty decisive, but maybe you don't for whatever reason. Maybe you don't share all those core assumptions that 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 kind of went into this traditional argumentation for God. Okay, fair enough. Let's see if we can go out and pick up additional confirmation. Let's see if we can uh, become even more confident in the classical theistic worldview by kind of shifting methodology here and seeing how it fares against atheistic naturalism for explaining everything else aside from say contingency or something like that. And that just always seemed like an obvious partnership to me. Like it, it, so it almost struck me as weird that more people weren't taking advantage of, of both of these philosophical approaches to God and trying to marry them together. So that's, that's what I did. Um, and I'm now trying to remember what your original question was. You asked, what what do I think that I nailed? Well, I don't know if I nailed that that synthesis or not, but I was but I am happy that I tried to. I think it works. I think it works well. I think I was clear about what my project was. Um, and I'm also I guess I would say I'm particularly happy with how the, the section on cosmological reasoning turned out um, because it is a contemporary cosmological argument with a lot of traditional insights. But I'm, I'm doing the best that I can to bring it up to the contemporary conversation uh, and kind of right at where I see where the sort of ed edge of the debate currently is. Sorry, that was a lot of words coming out of my mouth. So I feel I should let you talk now, Jake. Well, well podcasts are pretty much made of words. So I don't think that's too much of a problem. You know, my, my reflection on, on your many words, in my many words, is that we commonly get this... Um, you know, scientism, scientistic thing, and we criticize it. But there's something very good about it that people 
ought to like science. They ought to like tools which produce good, reliable results. And I think science at its best does basically what you're talking about. It doesn't just do an empirical work. It's meant to actually start kind of from the armchair. Yeah. You're supposed to form a hypothesis using reason based on, if you can, first principles, and then go out and see if it works in the world. So that's what I see you doing. And if you miss one side or the other, on the one side, if you lose that kind of rational beginning, it's like those guys who are combing through big data and you can find just random correlations. Oh, totally. And, it's, mm-hmm. and it kind of pushes you into superstition. I'm thinking of like the pagan kind of cultures who say, hey, there's thunder. And we were kind of jerks this month. So maybe God is thundering mean things at us. You know, they're just finding random correlations and they're not beginning with this like rational deductive um, foundation. Right. And on the other side, if you don't ever bring your theory and have it strike against the real world, you can lose a lot of like the textured complexity of how these things work in reality. I guess you can think of people who, have their heads so deeply in philosophy, they don't kind of look at, you know, say revealed religion, see how the actual God actually related to actual people through time and space. Like that would be like an empirical test. We know God is love. All right. We're going to have to see that played out in reality through the Old Testament story, the, the Exodus, finally the crucifixion, and then, you know, the rest of the the whole salvation story. So hundred percent, fan of that and i'd say that it could appeal to people who are broadly in favor of that scientific method here's a simple example that might draw i mean this is going to seem like cartoonishly simple but it might help illustrate some of the general things you're talking about right so say somebody's kind of like focused on the negative states of affairs uh and they're coming from this yeah from they're not a hardcore naturalist or they're open to the supernatural realm well they might just have a sort of very dualistic framework where they'll they'll say, well, look, we can make sense of the chaos of this world and the pain of this world because there's just kind of two warring gods at back of everything, right? We've heard this story before. Sure. And like, hey, fair enough. That kind of seems to explain a fair amount of the data, right? But the problem is it doesn't wrap around all the relevant data because we might also want to know like, well, why do any of these kind of two warring gods exist, right? They certainly seem sort of finite and not you know, relevantly different from the rest of the contingent physical world once we kind of think about them, right? Uh, so so now we need to kind of like figure out a, a theory that can explain more, uh, but still not lose the explanatory power that this dualistic theory, if you want to call it that, had when it concerns the problem of evil. And so then you might say, okay, well, maybe we can go more towards a classical theism where there is just one perfect fundamental reality. So goodness is more fundamental than evil, which I think makes a lot more metaphysical sense when you analyze evil as a privation anyways, that that goodness is necessarily prior uh, to any sort of privation or defect or something like that, right? So that's, that's an advantage. But then you could still kind of keep aspects of this kind of spiritual warfare just by having in your ontology, if you wanna uh, speak that way, uh, other very powerful free created entities, angels or also demons, right? That then have a role in the unfurling of creation. And I would actually argue 
that that itself is a very simple theory because rather than kind of two moving components at the root, now we just have one perfect root component. And then, yeah, we might have kind of more stuff flowing or tumbling out of it, but, but that's a flowing or tumbling out of a very simple root theory. And consequences, especially probable consequences of a root theory are not internal complications, right? So that's not actually really a problem for the simplicity considerations uh, that we're ultimately kind of concerned with when it comes to worldview comparison. So again, kind of a silly, almost childlike example. I actually don't think it's too far off the mark at the end of the day, right? But it, it, can, it can show how if you just focus on one thing at the expense of, of everything else, you come up with a theory that actually like kind of explains that data really well, but then it misses the mark on, on some other really important features of the world that we need to explain. And as you try to be more and more systematic, I think to be a great philosopher, you really have to not just be systematic, but you have to be a generalist, right? Uh, as me so many of the world's greatest philosophers were, they weren't these like hardcore hyper specialists just trying, like Plato wasn't just trying to work out one very obscure issue in philosophy of mind, right? He was trying to see how everything sort of held together or fit together as a whole. And unfortunately, I think that's that's become lost in so much of the sort of modern academic environment where sort of the key to success or publication or something like that just is this sort of hyper specialization to, to know no to know more and more about one particular thing to the point that you almost uh, know nothing about anything else, right? So. You know everything about nothing. You know more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about nothing. Yeah, man. I, That's is, my favorite quote. There's truth to that. Yeah. Well, Plato didn't need to get tenure, so that was a plus. That helps. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Definitely mm -hmm. helps. Well, well, you know I'm a big fan of taking the more angelic uh, angle when looking at the problem of evil. I think there's a way that we can kind of rehabilitate our dualistic um, uh impulses right that there's this battle between good and evil uh going on because there is a battle between right yeah like that, that evil, impulse right? that, that instinct that intuition is not is is not like totally off the rails yeah, yeah, right yeah. it just check true yeah and especially like with the father's reflection on like the christus victor um theory of salvation like that's made like super explicit there's um i think it was saint cyprian who i love his quote about i think it's him fact check me on this one guys um, he refers to the incarnation as God um, taking up a like a chair, like the flesh of Christ being his war chariot to like ride against the evil that's in creation yeah. by entering into creation. And that does picture, I mean, quite the cosmic battle. And it was against Satan, a powerful evil spirit. Um so, yeah, I think that we can say yes to a lot of those impulses while clarifying that ultimately there is one foundation who is all good, God yes. himself, and then allows contingent beings to dabble in good and dabble in evil. They're free to have non-being where being ought to be. They're free to misarrange the hierarchy of goods, however you want to describe yep. um, evil. And there could be good reasons for that. So we got to look at what level of causal explanation are we targeting i don't think it can ultimately explain it because we can't actually have a good and evil god i don't see that as metaphysically possible right yeah um but i think if we drop it down to the level of angels or that dude's theory of archons which <laughs> yeah whatever we can get into the, we can get into dude's theory of archons if we want right <laughs> philosopher then, uh, mark johnson yeah 
There you go. Yeah. There you go. I knew he had an actual more professional title. Yeah, right. um, but yeah, no, I'm very, I'm very much sympathetic to that kind of solution to the problem of evil. And um, yeah, it does sound a lot better than. And it's uh, and, and and here's what I'll say: it's not ad hoc either, either, because if you're doing the the sort of metaphysics first, you're in the field, you're doing metaphysics. It always sounds so romantic, right? And you kind of have these very traditional, I think, true principles about the good being self-diffusive right and the great chain of being and the principle of plenitude and all that stuff right then you start to get i think really strong predictions and anticipations of this hierarchy of being right and this um creation being mediated through these various spiritual uh entities right that are possessed of significant autonomy freedom and that if some of them go completely haywire um can very much help to make sense of the various evils, lines of suffering, including specifically natural evils that we see in the world, which again, like really satisfies that, that dualistic impulse, as you call it, or instinct, but is actually part of a much more, I would say, coherent and refined and systematic and successful theory and simpler theory at the end of the day as well. Right. And unfortunately it's this kind of, um, these kind of musings, which get mocked by like Joe atheist. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, bro. Oh, okay. I, I'm not trying to have a seat at your lunch table. So sneer oh, all you no, want no, at, no. at the archons and I'll sneer right back at your, you know, claims to strong emergence and philosophy of mind. <laughs> right. And we'll all have, we'll have a good, good sneering and then we can get back to doing serious philosophy at the end of the day. Right. But, you know, I think that they shouldn't sneer as much as they do because we could we could kind of apply that scientific means of thought of saying, all right, you think you are conscious, you think you are rational, you think you have a will, right? We're all on the same page, that there are minds, at least ourselves, and most certainly other people as well. Okay, now we can kind of enter in with all of the arguments that say that this intellect, that this will, that consciousness needs to be immaterial. All right, that's stage two. So if we admit that there could be immaterial minds and wills and rationalities and whatnot, um, how would we test to see if this is true over a long period of time with many independent observers? Well, one option would be to look to independent cultures scattered throughout the world across all the ages and to see if they have ever experienced um, any one of these immaterial uh, entities. And the answer is every single culture that I've ever heard of has some type of interaction. And the only ones which might be an exception are the most modern cultures who are the most disconnected from reality and live mm -hmm. in kind of a constructed reality. So right. the people who would have the opportunity to encounter these in nature almost unanimously report that they do. It doesn't seem to go against what we know philosophically. And they would be similar to us minus the material body. So if you have a huge problem with immateriality, that's not going to appeal to you. But if you could accept some of the arguments for um, the immateriality of the soul, et cetera, then I think we actually have a good empirical verification of that. And not only that, but we have other um, sort of empirical verifications. And one can you know, decide for themselves how much weight they should be assigned. But you can look towards things like near-death experiences and mystical experiences and all that and pick up. And, and of course, uh, various miracle accounts like Fatima. And stuff like that, right? Where these are all the sorts of things I would argue that you would expect to occur 
if there is this great chain of being in this higher spiritual realm, they are not all the sorts of things you would expect to occur if you're a hardcore naturalist and think that it's just sort of this hyperactive agency detector just going absolutely haywire, right? That's that that's really stretching that theory like beyond any degree of reasonableness as far as I'm concerned, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a very asymmetric kind of evidential space where only one of those near-death experiences need to be legitimately, yes. need to be legitimate. Only one actual encounter with an angel would prove angels. So even if you do think that most of these are bunk, you got to look at them as a set because that's what they are. At which point, I think the probability of one of the things in this incredibly large set being actual, I mean, that gets pretty high. That's a, that's a lot that, of numbers. Being and if you look at the actual research around a lot of the NDEs, now it's very interesting and there's many potential lines of philosophical implications. So you got to think through it carefully. But one of the things that they definitely seem to do is close, close off a naturalistic option, right? Um, and they're not just, you know, people having experiences of the divine or this or that, but you have many reports of angelic encounters specifically uh, in these types of experiences. So, yeah, points all well taken. I agree. Actually, there was one thing I didn't include in the book. I was I was thinking about maybe kind of going into some of the stuff of of NDEs. It's been a number of years since I've really looked at the 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 research surrounding that. But I mean. A number of years ago, I was very, very interested in it, and I was very impressed with just how credible, you know, a number of these these accounts are and how resistant they are to any sort of even remotely plausible naturalistic explanation and in similar ways to like Fatima and stuff like that. And remember, you can you don't have to be like super punchy with the argument. I mean, I think you can be. But you don't have to say, look, there is no possible way that naturalism can explain this. You can just say, look, no, this is just better expected, uh, better anticipated on my worldview by a significant degree. Right? It's more likely that stuff like this would happen if classical theism is true than if metaphysical naturalism is true. Uh, and that just that just helps you to assign a particular, I think, significant evidential weight, even if you haven't closed off all the possibility spaces if you will you don't need to do that right when you're just trying to assign evidential weight in this sort right. of game right just, just tips the scale a little bit i'm kind of glad you didn't include that just because some people are just going to come to it and just offhandedly dismiss it and yeah think, well, yeah i guess this stuff i don't know, know maybe like it's maybe it's just like as, as my joints hurt more throughout the years i just i just care less about that you know like it, philosophy has always been I'm extremely self-indulgent, Jake, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> right? Like I, like, I didn't get into philosophy to answer questions for other people. I got in it to answer questions for myself. Um, I'm the same way with the music I play. Like, I don't I don't play the music I play for people who know I'm I'm in a band. Right. Uh, who don't know. Um, I, I play the music I play because I like to play it. Uh, and if other people like to listen, awesome. Uh, you know, like, let's 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 rock out together. The philosophy I do. I do because this is the stuff that I'm interested in. And these are the, the best answers that I've been able to provide for myself on questions that are meaningful to myself. And to the extent that other people find that helpful and convincing, awesome. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. But I'm by no, like I'm congenitally incapable of, I think like, <laughs> like caring that somebody would just, you know, just dismiss out of hand one of these, these arguments, right? It's, I don't know what to do about that. I, I, just, I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't see how it would even be worth my time to care like i i'm here for people who want to who do want to think seriously about these things 
uh, who don't ha have their mind like totally made up in advance one way or another. Uh, that's the person I'm trying to appeal to. I think if you just you try to appeal to absolutely everybody and start making all sorts of compromises or pathetic attempts, then it just kind of comes off as kind of pathetic at the end of the day. But that's just my opinion, man. Yeah, you know, I think I'm one step closer to kind of thinking about, you know, Joe Schmo over there. Like, so, you know, you you play music. I build houses on the side. Okay, maybe that's my entire profession. Anyways, I refuse to build custom homes because I'm like, no, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Like, I think that's the equivalent of trying to write for those people, try to target specific arguments trying to do that it's just a mess you don't want to do it you got to deal with all the eccentricities of all these people you yeah, have to kind yeah, of be in imagine. their psychology it's awful I, I won't do that so i build spec houses instead and i build them the way i think is a great idea but that doesn't mean they're like just for me like i do have an eye to the market i think what would people in general enjoy that i could put in at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time frame to create lots of value. So it's that's kind of the way I look at, you know, my podcast and other work I do. I'm not writing for anybody in particular, but you know, I'm not trying to get into their psychology, but I do want it to be broadly likable. And I'm going to put things together like on the back end, the way that I think yeah, makes yeah. the most sense, irrespective I, of how people I, like it. I see. What, I see. I, yeah, I think there's a, a, a reasonable point where we're actually both converging upon, right? So, um, I like. I don't think the average Joe Joe Schmo uh, has like a total bias against Archons and Angels, right? I think like the you know maybe average Reddit atheist might um, with the editors, yeah, vicious little creatures, yes. yeah. So like. Yeah, I used to go to this restaurant back in, in Pennsylvania, and I loved it. It was one of those restaurants where the guy was trained at the French Laundry and studied there and all that. And I guess that's a, a fancy place to learn how to cook or whatever. But, um, like, you were served what you were served, right? <laughs> right? You were not allowed to ask for substitutions, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, no at the, but at the same time, like, it's, it's obvious that, you know, he was cooking for himself, but what he was cooking wasn't just goat brains. You know what I mean? Right. Um you might get the goat brain as like a weird obscure appetizer here and there just just for fun but at the end of the day it's still it's still steak you know stuff that that most people are going to be all about and i think that's i think that's maybe a decent enough analogy for what i'm doing like the stuff i'm talking about i think is stuff that most people are interested in and they will be willing to entertain but of course there's just going to be that contingent of people that for whatever reason are going to sneer at some of these things often not for any good rational reason right and it's 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 that contingent that i don't feel um particularly compelled to pander to by any by any sense of you know of the imagination if you will um it sounds like we are converging I'd, I'd say we could sum it up with hate is gonna hate haters gonna hate haters gonna know, hate um yeah. And the, the, the extent you, you start to try and do that and, and make compromises for people who probably aren't taking a serious, fair, rational look at your position anyways, I think is the extent you're going to dilute the goodness of what you're doing otherwise for everybody else and for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, th now, that's, of course, just a, a matter of methodology and, and, and prudence and all that. Uh, but again, I have to admit, at the end of the day, I... I I'm doing the philosophy primarily I for myself. I mean, I'm very grateful that other people have found it as helpful as they have and they they use it 
for apologetics. But as you know, Jake, I always sort of resist the term apologist um, because, yes, I think that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that that is within us. But I don't see my role as a, an apologist to me in the contemporary sense, like somebody who does apologetics, as somebody who's kind of scanning the scene of saying, okay, and what are all the ways that somebody's objecting to the Christian or Catholic faith right now? Let me go out and like put those fires out, right? So you're kind of hopping from maybe some theistic uh, arguments to resurrection arguments to church history arguments. Is that man? I'm just not. That's not what I'm doing, right? I'm just I'm just in the weeds of metaphysics, just trying to work out things that have gripped me that I think are important questions and issues. And to the extent that that has been useful for people who are either doing apologetics or interested in that, awesome, take it, use it, and I hope you get awesome results. Um, but I, I just, yeah, I resist that term because what I'm doing is most of what I do is actually probably quite obscure and not super relevant to mainstream apologetics. Um, and this is not to belittle apologetics. I think it's an enormously important project and I'm very, very happy that there are many people out there who are dedicating themselves to it and doing a great job of it. Many good friends of mine, it's just not really what I'm up to. Uh, and it's not even totally what this book is. This book will be probably categorized by many as an apologetics book, but that that's not my intent. This this book to me is a is a philosophy of God book at the end of the day. Nice. Yeah, I, I see apologists as kind of being like cops. They run around and they just kind of try to nab the bad arguments and stop them. Yeah, that's whereas, a good analogy. <laughs> um, whereas philosophers and theologians, kind of the free range ones that you mentioned, frolic so so very often. Um, they're more like people who like train jujitsu or MMA or something like, yes, they can also take down somebody, but they're not like prowling the streets looking for them. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a very yeah. good illustration, <laughs> but they could probably help that cop learn a few things here and there so that they can go and take that person down and not be beat up on the streets. Um, yeah, that's my analogy. I like it. So what would you want people to, uh, what's the next book you would want people to, to read after this one? They put down yours. They're like, got it. Remembered it all. Maybe they even fill out that application in the back to join the Barry Miller fan club. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't did, see it. Yeah. I assumed it was in the appendix. Yeah, for sure. um, what we should you start that. Them... <laughs> you, you really should. You get like a, a quarterly newsletter. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's completely unintelligible. It's written as one giant run on sentence <laughs> right, with sure. like 1,000 right. subordinated clauses. Dues are $100 a year. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, what do you think they should like? dig into right after this do you think they should focus more on that argument about um oh simplicity and in, in uh like your your core metaphysical assumptions well, do you think they should like dig into one of the cosmological arguments where would you want like somebody who's getting their feet wet in this whole subject to kind of kind of go next where do you well think I, yeah yeah obviously I, I think philosophy is a is a lifelong venture and you you know you don't just look at an issue once and never return to it that said, I'd, I'd like to think that hopefully if people, you know, work through my book, they, they find at least a lot of it pretty decisive, right? That they, they could then move on um, to other things that seem important or are interesting, right? Um, I do not argue for um, uh, Christianity or Catholicism in the book. I'm using a lot of uh, various insights from many Christians and Catholics, of course. Um, but I certainly hope to 
remove barriers to consideration and remove barriers to entry and to invite, I think I actually have this right at the end of the book, to invite people to consider how befitting revealed religion would be with the worldview that I just articulated and explained and why actually something like the incarnation and atonement uh, makes a ton of sense philosophically, right? So I'm extending that sort of invitation of saying, hey, you know, if, if this worldview is true, uh, there's a not insignificant chance that some religion out there is true. And I've sort of planted the seeds that seem to point strongly in the direction of one in particular, namely the Christian religion. So I guess one thing that would make me happy is if somebody kind of came in more or less an agnostic, got through the book, felt a pretty good case for classical theism was made, and then started taking seriously considerations for Christianity and the Catholic faith. I think that would be a, a pretty, I would feel like that was, that was pretty cool if that happened. Yeah, I found like in conversation with people who generally don't have a religious background, my goal is to just get them to really like Plato and Aristotle. If I can do that in conversation, I call it a win because that really sets the stage for a lot of Christian teaching. Like recently um, on my podcast, we went through the virtue of magnanimity in regards to church and state. And I went through the chapter that Aristotle writes about that in the Nicomachean Ethics, and he describes the truly magnanimous man. And it's like a full on portrait of Christ. And then towards the end, he even says, we would kind of need a guy like this to actually model this virtue. Yes. It's like, right. whoa. And then um, the last episode where we went through um, uh, contrasting Ecclesiastes with Plato's Analogy of the Cave, um, which I thought was super cool i learned a bunch putting it together but when you read about plato's analogy of the cave which i haven't read in forever i forgot how much that too images christ and he ends that dialogue saying there has to be some type of craft there has to be some type of like means by which we kind of get this whole thing going mm, where we get mm -hmm. that knowledge from way up high down low we need to connect to these worlds somehow we need the dude that we've been describing <laughs> right then, then when you layer in things like new testament uses of that same platonic term mm -hmm. whereby the logos becomes in flesh that paul uses yeah right on. he's kind of calling back to this whole concept mm -hmm. right so i think if you set the stage with like some solid philosophy you got the classical theism in, in the bag, and then you move into questions of ethics and questions of intelligibility. Yes. Then, boy, you're heading real close to revealed religion. Dude, I think so. And, you know, this actually makes me want to maybe clarify what I said before about kind of who I'm writing for. And in a sense, I said I'm self-indulgent. I'm writing for myself. But I could also see myself as being a, the sort of archetype or target audience. And for people who don't know my history, you know, I was in the naturalistic camp for a while, but I think I was, I don't know if you could ever be an ideal agnostic really on an issue because of everything that presses in on us, but I was pretty darn close, right? Like even though I, I had moved away from uh, religion and a theistic worldview at a fairly young age, I never had any beef with religion. You know what I mean? Like I never had bad religious experiences with other people. And, and like, it, it always seemed kind of silly to me um, to think that like everything that's wrong with the world is the fault of, of religion. That always just seemed like a completely untenable, if not idiotic thing to say. Right. Um, for just really, for the most part, I just thought that there were good reasons for naturalism, not very good reasons for belief in God. So like when I actually 
like really tried to work out a naturalistic system and 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 discovered gradually that oh no this doesn't really make sense of much of anything rationality consciousness contingency whatever like it seems to fail at every particular point where we need some sort of adequate explanation naturalism just doesn't have it right and then once i did go back and take a more serious look at call it big tent platonism or perennial philosophy and began to see a, a philosophical perspective that really did uh, have adequate resources uh to make sense of these i think undeniable features of reality like it wasn't hard for me to make that pivot you know what i mean like like it was like oh yeah i'm just going this way right like no big deal and then and then once you're there uh it wasn't it was it isn't that hard at least again for me since i didn't have any particular issue with the idea of religion generally or even christianity specifically it's just kind of this weird american thing jake it should like whenever you like for whatever it is and maybe it's not just an american thing but it definitely is an american thing that like we never want to look at like the like what's in our own neighborhood you know what i mean like when we're looking for answers we're always looking for the exotic right so my impulse was after i left naturalism like yeah i want to go to those pagan thinkers and eastern thought or this or that and it wasn't because i despised christianity or something like that it's just this kind of weird thing like oh man maybe they've got the secrets over there right not like this parish that's right next to my house or something like that but eventually i came around um and i came around for all the reasons that, that we've been discussing and it wasn't difficult i would say it took time but it wasn't difficult for me to come around because i didn't have some deep emotional or political block to belief in god or revealed religion or christianity or, or catholicism or any of that does any of that make sense and uh, you see what i'm getting at yeah man that's a very different you took a very different way ultimately into the church than i did so i was raised protestant and i basically learned that apologetics was synonymous with defending creationism then as i got I older read some dawkins that kind of got blown up and i'm like whoa okay any other arguments and I found some philosophical arguments, but none of them were very good. None of them were presented in a very winning way. Most of them could just be batted down. And it basically inoculated me against philosophical arguments for God. I yeah. just didn't come across any good ones. But I had studied a lot of scripture, a lot of theology. I had started reading Augustine. So... I was familiarizing myself with like the systematic theology in the Catholic faith at that point being Protestant, exploring that. So as my belief in God was dropping off, my knowledge of like the corpus of Catholic work was increasing. Mm -hmm. And what I found at one point, I was at a Baptist college, Liberty University, and I was defending Catholic theology while being an agnostic on the question yeah. of God. Well, how about and, that? <laughs> and, you know, I realized, okay, there's a few things that kind of held me in the agnostic and kept me away from atheism. One was the weirdness of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, and the next one was how coherent Catholic doctrine was. It reminds me of, like, people think if you bring some criminal into uh in, into the interrogation chamber yeah that you like what's the likelihood that he's going to tell you he's lying mm. so it, but the answer is none right? right he's never going to tell you he's he's lying but what you can do is ask for such level of specificity in his story that a lie just would have to be so incredibly large and complex it would have to just be the map of the world 
in order for everything to link together in yes, the story. Right. So mm. I saw Catholicism as having been interrogated by cultures from around the world, by different philosophical disciplines, by different religions. It was interrogated by each and could continually give a consistent story at every step. Yes. And that is a very strong sign that these people are telling the truth. Yeah, the internal consistency. This was big for me too, Jake. And seeing the logical web of connections within Catholic doctrine and dogma was extremely impressive. Right. Yeah, that's uh, a big, big, big deal that people kind of count out. It reminds me of when you, you when you're studying math. Where's John DeRosa for this? When you're studying math and you you can use different things and and kind of use the math before you can prove the math. Often mathematical proofs are a higher level than just the use. Yeah. So I felt like I was able to use some of these things, but not prove them until I later did bump into some good philosophy right. and find that I could anchor it in classical theism. And it's one of those things where you might not see, well, why does the church teach this, um, say, about Mary? But then you come to understand something about Christology and boom, then you see the logical connection day and night and like, oh, wow, that's really something, right? <laughs> right. And then another kind of carrying the interrogation analogy is mm -hmm. um, when there's multiple accomplices, you separate them and you interrogate them. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for them all to have the same story. And you would want to find things where they are commenting on stuff that the other ones have not observed. And yet it seems to link together. Yes. And that's what I saw theologically and philosophically, where no one Catholic person, except for kind of maybe Thomas Aquinas, had like the whole picture in his mind. Right. It was theologians from across the world in different languages who are all saying the same story. And that's like an impossible conspiracy. And mm -hmm. when you really get into the nitty gritty, the only way that you get that type of uniformity would have to be being based in reality. Right. It's just, it's just true. It maps to what is right. I totally yep. agree. And that's something about just Thomas's uh, thought in general, right? Philosophically, one of the things that really appealed to me about it. And this isn't just Thomas, you know, as I've said before, I think on the show, Jake, you know, some people say Thomas is the first great medieval philosopher. To me, he's like the last great classical one, right? He kind of completes or perfects perennial philosophy, big tent Platonism. And say what you want about if you, whether you think any particular aspect of his philosophy is true, but there's coherence and connection between the different realms or branches of philosophy. Like what he has to say about metaphysics deeply informs his considerations about ethics, for example, and philosophical anthropology and his theories of knowledge, I get like all hangs together in this beautiful systematic whole. And that to me is something that really struck me. It's just, it's very impressive. It's not like you just have like one kind of solution to an isolated issue here, but it's completely in tension with another solution that you pr pr propose to an isolated issue over there, right? Which is what you kind of get in a lot of modern philosophy, right? But not so with Thomas. You have this this great coherence, this great systematicity um, that I think, again, is not a, necessarily a proof of, but an indicator that we're on to something right. This is there's there's truth in this. Right. Mm -hmm. There you go. I mean, that's the worldview comparison kind of thing we're talking about. So I'm glad. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're kind of hitting that same core insight of the book that you got to take it from these both both of these perspectives from that deductive kind of old school and you got to test it out and see how well it actually works as a worldview. Um, and when those two things link up, then that is that's very strong confirmation. 
Yeah, dude. To that, I would say I'm at. I'm not about to disagree with my fundamental thesis. If that's what you're well, that to. would be a plot twist. Yeah. If like, <laughs> I, renounce, ah, I renounce no. it all. I actually emailed a philosopher the other day because I needed a, a paper of his. And it was very funny because he's like, all right, read this, but like, don't read any of my work before it. And he's been around for a long time. So apparently he just like completely had a change of mind and like renounced all of this. I won't mention his name. because This is a private correspondence, but like very funny to see that happen. <laughs> just I, ignore, just ignore my 40 years of work all before this. I just oh, I totally get that. When people but you know, like, like, hey, oh. like, bravo, man. Like, like to like, you know, have a career based on this line of thought more or less and be able to like, you don't see that in academia because people become so, you know, uh, th their theory is their pet. It's their precious, right? They they have to, you know, people in academia are by no means unbiased, right? Once they have a kind of skin in the game in some way, boy, uh, it's, it's hard to get people to change direction or change minds. So I was actually pretty impressed. Uh, I was like, hey, man, like, good for you. That that shows to me that you're probably really trying to figure out what's what's true and what's right. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I just tell people never look at my old work because I say um too many times in the podcast. Um, yeah, I've but... <laughs> I've worked, and then when you clean up the ums, and you'll say something like "right" too many times. So I do. It's just, it's just it's like whack them all with just stupid mannerisms. At least for me. Oh yeah. Hit down it's one, another one pops right up. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, cool, man. Well, I'd say let's. Uh, I guess we got to wrap it up here. Um, you were up with a uh, series of sick babies. I have a newborn, and just one of these can entirely overwhelm one. Um, not an experienced father like yourself, but one like me. Um, so let's wrap it on up. Um, basically saying what other thoughts did you want to throw out that uh, people are going to be excited to read in your book? And where can they buy it? Is yeah. it officially out or is it just pre-order? Uh, no, it, it comes out officially October 17th. So it's pre-order. And if you pre-order, here's if you want the Barry Miller stuff and the more technical stuff, just pre-order it. Email me, um, uh, Pat Flynn. Um, at chroniclesofstrength.com. Maybe, Jake, we could put the email in the show notes so people have it. And just email me that you, you pre-ordered it. I'll put you on the list for the bonus material. Once the book comes out, I'll uh, have an email list of people who just want the bonus material. I'll make sure that you get that. So that's that's totally free just for pre-ordering the book. You can you can have the extra. Uh, it's not just the Miller stuff. I have some, some other uh, chapters and articles and stuff that I thought would be a nice compliment to the book that you'll get as well. Um, Throw in the thumper the rabbit story if they request pat yeah yeah if you, you know it's if my, you request it you got it right i'm here the best whack at making it as simple as possible probably lost a little bit of the thrust of the argument but hey it's all right what you're gonna do what yeah. you're gonna do it's always no. balanced so yeah october 17th is when it comes out and jake i know we've had you know more detailed technical conversations on different aspects of this book on your podcast before so people can kind of get a flavor of the route that i would take by listening to some of our previous conversations but i uh always enjoy our conversations you know, uh, they always uh, get me thinking about interesting things and in often different and new ways. So I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Jake, as always. Cool. Well, congrats on finishing the book. And we'll uh, certainly have to have you back in the future for uh, for your next book. God willing, man. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Boom. Podcast done. Boom. Oh, man, that was that was easy sailing today, my friend. Easy. Easy sailing. Hopefully, was it enough sure. material that should interest your audience in there? I hope. No, I think so. I think so. You know, they've they've been spoiled rotten with a bunch of uh, um, request episodes recently. So I'm like, you know what? If they get a random interview that 
I, I think this one is good. But even if they didn't like, because they, we got we did co- we covered co- like the various cosmological arguments. I'm trying to remember what we did on your podcast before. What what were a the lot. topic? Yeah, we've done a lot. We've right? covered problem of evil hard. So I, I know we did that, so that was yeah. No need to repeat that. Um, no, we've covered we've covered PSR pretty hard. Nice. Um, I think more than once. Um, do, 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 do. Oh, good. So yeah. then they've got a good flavor of what will be in the book from our previous conversation. Yeah, I don't think we've ever hit like the Dante kind of reasoning. Um, I don't know. Maybe at some point we we'll have to hit that. That's more of a Gavin thing. Um, it is, and yeah. Ga- and you know, um, I don't know how much Gavin and I see eye to eye on the Miller stuff. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, so Gavin, de- I, look, I think the argument Gavin develops is is very good. But so far as I can tell, the way that it's developed, it still requires a at least restricted or modest form of PSR to shove it through, right? Huh. Whereas, okay. and I'm trying to kind of recall what exactly he had. I remember him focusing on like the, uh, oh, like the distinction of why am I missing the words? Like the, um, I mean, he's the distinction between essence and existence and whatnot. Yeah. So, I mean, say you, say you, say you do all your metaphysics and you get Aquinas's uh, theory of existence on the table, right? So, existence right. is something we predicate of concrete contingent individuals. And then we and then we have our arguments for the real distinction, multiplicity arguments, whatever you have you, right? I like the multiplicity argument a lot. I think it's a good one. So, you have the real distinction, right? And then you have these things whose essence does not guarantee their existence. So then we start to ask, well, why do they exist, right? And then you trace back to something whose essence just is its existence, right? But that argument just by itself, which I think is a good argument, right, does require that the, these these things whose essence is really, are really distinct from um, its existence aren't just brutally there, right? That they're caused to be there, right? Whereas Miller's path is a little bit more intricate, right? So what, what he's doing is he's... And I, obviously, I think they're compatible, but Miller's drawing out something a bit stronger, right? He's not relying on this broad causal principle or PSR. What Miller is saying is like, look, hold on, let's let's think a little bit more about these metaphysical composites. You know, I like to use Thumper the Rabbit, right? And there's this essence element and there's this existent element. But the problem is you have these sort of mutual reciprocities, right? Right. I remember this. Yeah. So we yeah. got to have like the the essence which defines the edges of this particular. Right. Right. It, it's, yeah. So like which one has which one has has priority in the relevant sense? Well, the existence element crucially requires the thumper element for its individuation or completeness. Right. Mm-hmm. However, um, so you need a thumper element to complete the existence element. But the thumper element apart from the existence element is literally nothing. Right. So once you really push the analysis through, what you have is something where. The essence and existence element must be parts, but when considered just and say, cannot be parts, right? So they must be parts, yet considered just and say, cannot be parts. And that's the contradictory implication that Miller draws out. So Miller's argument is really quite forceful and strong because he's saying, look, at the end of the day, if we just leave the analysis at Thumper the Rabbit and we say that Thumper exists is not a suppressed proposition, then he's a contradictory structure. He cannot exist, but he does exist. So it can't be a contradictory structure. And the only way to get out of that is to say Thumper exists must mean more than what it just initially seems. It's got to be suppressed. Suppressed for what? Thumper exists qua dependent upon some external factor, whatever that is, right? Um, And that is, I think, a really powerful argument because it doesn't require uh, PSR or or the causal principle, right? It just requires that you don't think that there can be real contradictions (laughs) in the world, right? Um, Now, somebody... What do they... What yeah. do they say to um, 
I'm sure it was in the article, but it's been a bit. Um, what do they say to the idea? Well, okay, well, we have these two chicken or the egg kind of issues here. What if it just happens exactly concurrently? Like the essence, the existence, it's got this kind of mutual cause and effect going back and forth relationship, but it's just bang. We could have it all at once. It's well, not temporally separated. Well, no, Miller argues it can't be temporally separated. Like God has to fund the unity of these constituents whole and complete. Right. There can't be any sort of temporal ordering here. The The priority has to be uh, purely logical or conceptual. Right. So that wouldn't be disagreed upon. Uh, so they're saying, OK, it's not um, uh, contradictory. Yeah, no, you can't like lay down. You can't like lay down a T1, a layer of essence and then like T2 put the the, the existence into it. Right. That's going to be totally incoherent. Uh, yeah, yes, we'd have to have it poof, blammo there. Whole, at which point, how does it work with? it being contradictory because we need say the essence to uh define this amount of because you still have the real distinction right you still have the the real distinction and the priority even if it's just a explanatory priority not a temporal priority right so that's why you still need the extrinsic entity to think here's an analogy i I use and i think this is in the chapter that got cut it's like you kind of think of our acts of thinking right and all analogies limp but this isn't a bad one right where there's the act of thinking and then there's what our thinking is about the shape of that particular act right mm-hmm. there's no mm-hmm. temporal sequence there it's just whole and complete but there's still a real distinction between the act of thinking and the shape of the thought if that makes so sense. as far as the priority relationship with that um are we saying that these these two um parts are uh more fundamental um do they have a causal relationship to the whole or are we saying there's a whole, say the thumper, who has a causal relationship to his parts? Well, I'm a I'm a real traditional essentialist, right? So, um, I think that there's here's yeah, this is and this is part of the the brilliance of um, Barry Miller is he is he notes that you can have um, priority in different respects, right? So in in certain respects. Some things can be prior and in other respects, other things can be prior. Right. So, I mean, just to go back to his essence and existence composition. Right. And that's Aquinas, too. Right. That is that is Aquinas. Right. So we don't have to just say it's one way. This is this is a little bit complicated. But Miller's where Miller brings us up is in relation to objections concerning Aquinas's theory of existence. Right. And this is where I would have to commend people to go read his excellent book, Fullness of Being, because this is exactly what he proposes, is is that the existence element is prior logically concerning the actuality of a thing. Right. But the essence element is prior logically concerning the individuation or completeness of a thing. So Miller and I think Aquinas and myself would would reject that there's just priority in one sense and, and that's it. And that's all. Right. Um, and in fact, there, if you want to get Aquinas's theory of existence off the ground, I think you have to go the route that that Miller does to avoid some of these objections against his theory of existence, where there can be priorities in, in different in different respects to avoid some of these paradoxes or, or puzzles, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I got to load the argument back into my head there. Yeah. That, that's the only kind of concern is people saying kind of pressing that and having to defend that really granular 
you know, distinction of this is priority with regards to that. Well, this, this is why the chapter got this. cut, man, because to like, it's like, where do you want to do your work at the end of the day? And I always try to tell people like philosophy, you're never going to get out of doing hard work with philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, where do you want to do it? I, I think Miller's argument is extremely powerful for pushing through an argument for the existence of God, but you got to do a lot of upfront metaphysical work, right? You got to defend Aquinas' theory of existence and Miller's very good at that. And, you know, I, I give what I think are the highlights of that in the in the chapter. Then you got to um, then you got to unpack these contradictory implications. And then like once you do all that work, then, yeah, OK, the argument for God kind of slides through in a, in a pretty slick way. But that's a lot of conceptual heavy lifting leading up to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas, mm -hmm. OK, well, maybe if you just had a kind of basic PSR or something like that, you can you know, run a pretty quick argument to God from contingency or, or what have you. But then, of course, you're going to get the whole, you know, mob, you know, of, of atheists like coming down against PSR. Right. So then you're going to have to do work defending that against the whole. Right. You're going to have your work cut out for you no matter what. Right. Uh, and I like work. I'm not I'm not against it. It's just a matter of uh, deciding where you want to do the work or what the context is and what you think would be most effective you know yeah i really like the barry miller like like the very intro like the first freaking blow of the barry miller argument i think is like a it's awesome um like i love the idea that you can show that any given thing not like the universe as a whole or whatever like any given thing is a contradictory structure unless it ultimately is caused to be by something who, which is different in kind and in the relevant ways that make it God. Yeah. Like, so, so that, that's right. That is, yeah. a, that is a like hard, hard blow. Yeah. I just, I, and what for, I don't yeah. like about the argument is what you've kind of talked about with where the work goes from there. If someone's satisfied with that. And I think that like you probably should be because if you really pull out the implications of a theory, which denies like, Oh, like Aquinas' theory of like the part whole relation and whatnot, I think you do kind of lead to absurdity. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of work there that kind of makes me. I wouldn't want to argue it with a professional philosopher, but I would keep it in my back pocket for somebody who's like generally interested and doesn't want to go down like the crazy rabbit hole. Yeah, well, here's here's what I I love about Miller. So first off, I don't know. Are you, you could air this as like bonus content on the episode. I guess if you want, maybe some of your listeners would be interested in this but um, that is tradition that yeah that's the, the behind the scenes stuff yeah so yeah uh -huh. um, so knowing that that might happen maybe i should slow down and try and articulate some of these no things a better. no no this um, is also tradition they don't get any simplification yeah at all but the thing about <laughs> the thing about miller's argument is if, if if his approach is right it has you know a distinct advantage of not requiring something like psr and people might not right. think that that's a a huge advantage because PSR just seems so obviously true. I actually think PSR is so obviously true, but I'm just trying to show how there's different approaches to God. Right. Um, but so, okay. So you don't need uh, a PSR or some sort of broad causal or explanatory principle familiar. You just need PNC. Uh, but also like you hinted, like you don't have any concerns of composition fallacy or anything like that. Uh, Cause he's just arguing for these God from like one single composite entity. That's it. Yeah, right. That's, that's a, huge um advantage and what it is that that, that one i think is for sure an advantage of Miller's, enormous right? enormous that's on the list of like the, the straight up contradiction and the fact that we don't have to be um 
dealing with the composition fallacy objection and whatnot. Right. Are like we just, we numbered... just need Thumper, the sweet little bunny rabbit, and our exactly. metaphysical analysis of him, and we can just kind of shoot right to God with the principle of contradiction, right? Uh, totally, that's totally that's, that's cool, man. Uh, mm -hmm, and, and at the end of the day, mm -hmm. I think it's successful, but it does require a lot of metaphysical analysis and stage setting. Whereas if you just kind of like, you know, or just like prancing around with PSR and just kind of like lassoing all those contingent facts and making use of plural reference and stuff like that, yeah, people are going to attack you in various ways that you're going to, if you're dealing with sophisticated opponents, you're going to have to have responses to that. Um, and I think there are good responses to them. I have them in my book of how you can, how you can get around those objections. But my only point is, is like, look, there's, so I'm not being negative, right? I'm optimistic. I think both of these paths work. I think they're successful at the end of the day, but there's no path to God, no philosophical path to God that doesn't require significant amounts of just good old fashioned hard thinking, right? Right. And, you know, with the way Gavin lays out that Dante, which I really like his formulation of it, um, it, it, it doesn't take a, a super complex, wild and, and woolly type of PSR. It's pretty minimal. And I think that as we've kind of talked about before, there are different formulations. And, and, and Gavin would probably not even want to call it PSR. He would just use the principle of causality, right? Right. And I think that that's pretty easy to swallow. So, yeah. I mean, my favorite way, as all the listeners know, is the fourth way. Yes. And uh, it, to me, it seems like, you know, have you ever used Linux, for instance? No, I haven't. No, okay, yeah. All right, maybe, maybe this will be a bad analogy, but you have like that source code stuff and there's yeah. all those like super smart guys who use the terminal. Then there's like skins that go on top, like Linux Mint. Sure. And you can tell people you use Linux and you really do, but it's super like more user-friendly and easy. That's how I see the fourth way on top of Dante reasoning. It's like kind of operating with some of that background stuff going yes, on. Sure. But it can be a little bit easier and it's easier to like plug in regular examples. Like, um, you know, I typically use the term salt. Like if we find things that are salty, meaning like salt, well, could it be explained by something else which is salty or like salt? Mm -hmm. And eventually you arrive at something which, you know, contains within its nature the reason for its own saltiness, something that is salt by nature. Mm -hmm. So you get something which is different in kind, explaining it itself through itself. And then when you look at things with that are being-ish or true-ish or good-ish, then you have to arrive at the, the good, the true, that which is uttermost being or fully actual. Like, I think the ish stuff works for people because it at least it implies without having to lay everything out on the back end, the idea that there's a type of contingency which has to ultimately have like this um, thick ontological dependence of something of a kind. Right. Yes. No, I, I so I love the fourth way. Uh, I don't know if I've ever presented it like in a in like an everyday evangelistic or apologetics conversation i wouldn't even know how to oh get... dude i have that yeah no i have no good. doubt that you did man uh <laughs> I, and i bet you loved to do it too i bet you i bet you made the opportunity happen right <laughs> oh like yeah some retirement party and just like scooch up to the punch bowl and be like hey <laughs> <laughs> i could prove the existence of god from this right <laughs> people start bolting for the door people are trampled yeah no i i love it and like there's a like gavin says it's his his favorite way the fourth oh way. is it 
Yep, that's that's what he's told me. Uh, my my friend, Dr. Michael Torre, thinks that the fourth way is uh, extremely powerful as, as well. So I'm I'm totally on board with it. It's love it or hate it, man. If you read most articles on the fourth way, it begins with, okay, I don't really understand the fourth way, but I'm writing this article, so here goes nothing. Have you seen the the conversation or series I did with Gavin on the fourth way on, on my channel? I know we no. did it, at least. I know we did, did at I least one. That? Yeah, because he's he's got at least one article published on the on the fourth way maybe it's in like nova better or something like that i i think i read his article i'm pretty sure i read his article on that i've read a number of articles on the fourth way um i don't remember exactly the way i mean i know he takes like a strong dante twist on it yes yeah because for for him and i think it's genuinely right that like you kind of interpret all the five ways through aquinas's dante right the lens of dante i lean that way in general it's just my only problem is um the Dante is a descriptor like the when the conclusion of that argument is a descriptor of god yeah so it's true that there's going to be a commonality with all the five ways because they're all also describing god yeah but that doesn't mean that they proceed through the same reasoning even if they do arrive at the same god right <laughs> so i feel like that's kind of like a fine line yes everything's explained by the Dante, but that's for me just to say that all the five ways are explained by the same god yeah, yeah, Gavin's would be be stronger. I think a stronger thesis than that. So you guys might, yep, yep. but yeah, definitely part ways. You should have him on to, to talk I about really that. Should. Yeah, I really should. I, I gotta put him. I gotta put him on the list. Maybe we'll talk fourth way and and Dante. That'd be really cool. I know there's like Ed Phaser takes the fourth way as um, using efficient causality. Yeah, you know, Ed's and what? Gavin's uh, interpretation is are just very different. Just oh very yeah, different. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's terrible because so is there. So is same Gavin. with the fifth way. They they interpret the fifth way very differently too. Dude, well. I don't know how to interpret the fifth way. I tried. I had um oh, what's his name? The only person I could find who writes on the fifth way. Oh, uh, Delfino, Doctor. Yeah, I had Delfino yeah. on, and at the end, I'm like, eh. I mean, nothing against Delfino. It just the fifth way still does not strike me. As you gotta, you gotta compelling. go to. I do like Gavin's interpretation of it actually quite a bit. Uh, as does you he, know, I, as you know, I'm partial to the existential school. Of, does of, he focus of, on like the um, the role of like the uh, like uh, the 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 existence of forms and formal he, causality? He focuses through the through goodness actually. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so goodness it, is like the in like that like things are moving towards the good teleological it's, it's, it, it when i first read gavin's interpretation of it, it it was very different than anything i had read before on it um okay. and at first i was like i don't know if i buy this but then over time i thought about it more and kind of saw where I mean, gavin was getting his his thought from i became sort of increasingly attracted to it and and convinced yeah, by it so i would platonic i mean that's like plato stuff you know it's, yeah it's, dude it is so and, but but gavin is a, is is, that, a, is a neoplatonist when it comes to thomas so that's yeah that, that shouldn't yeah, surprise yeah. anybody sorry gavin's not here to talk about himself but i we i think we're rep, he's a good friend of mine so i think i'm representing his positions fairly and i i endorsed him i think that uh if people don't have gavin's uh very good book what was what was the what's the title of it the one that came out uh just this past year which collected all of his articles and essays on the existence of god um it might just be called collected collected articles on the existence of god people should search that up and and get that one because if you really want a contemporary thomas giving his particular interpretation but defense of all the five ways plus deente that is a, a wonderful volume for that yeah, I do hate it when him and Phaser disagree. I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> Why are mom and dad going? <laughs> um, That's exactly how I feel. 
Yeah, I would love to sit down and have them do a conversation around that. And, oh, and, and... That would be that would be awesome. That would be really cool. And yeah, I got to think about that fifth way. As we got, I got to go back to Plato and read that. Maybe that should be a podcast episode. I really haven't done any solo ones explaining the fifth way. That could be cool. Yeah, read up on Gavin's take, and then I'd be curious yeah. to see where you you come out on it and, and do that. It's been a, it's yeah. been it's been a while since I I spent any serious time thinking about the fifth way. So I would be. I would not. I mean, I would not. I would not articulate one yeah. shot. Yeah, I mean, again, as you know, I'm sure um, people are tired of being reminded, but you know, the the five ways were just really supposed to be mere summaries for beginning theology right. students, right? Like, right. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to figure out. My big problem with the fifth way is, and I think it came up in the Delfino um, interview, was a lot of the arguments to me don't yet prove God, but they do prove an angel. Yeah, right. So sure. I'm like, mm -hmm. it doesn't get to the idea that something has to be completely metaphysically simple. You could have just the simplicity that's present in an angel, and that would be sufficient for governance of a lot of these natural processes. That's already something in Thomas. Right. So I, I, I got to be convinced that the fifth way can make that jump. It can, it can get you all the way to the principled metaphysical endpoint. And Gavin's, Gavin argues that it can under his interpretation. So if that's okay. if that's your issue... Well, I, then I think it, you like, might find Gavin's um, route, you know, more satisfying than some of the other ones. I'm trying to remember Delfino. So he gives the example of just the, the, the mutual kind of interrelatedness of electrons being attracted to protons and needing an organizing intelligence, like pretty typical stuff right, like that. Right. 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 Well, I, I kind of worry that when you push like the goodness thing, now you've collapsed the fifth way into the fourth way. And in order to jump from that, like, directing angelic type thing all the way to divine simplicity you might need those principles which are present in the fourth way you know like the philosophical convertibility of goodness into being ultimately into the divine essence that kind of thing you think you think gavin's going to have an issue with that <laughs> no <laughs> but but you know that kind of uh, thinking out loud here we discussed the importance of angels theologically yeah that explains a lot of things what if we could take the fifth way not import things from the fourth way or the Dante and kind of repurpose it to be an argument in favor of angels. Well, I mean, dude, I think that's a cool project as you know, there's been many philosophers who've given just purely philosophical arguments uh, for, you know, higher um, spiritual intellects. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's yeah. a project that deserves a, you know, some fresh thinking in that direction. That'd be cool. Let's, let's bring back a proper philosophical angelology. Let's do it. Today make, is the day. Make angelology great cool. again. Yes, I'm all about it, man. Okay. Well, for real, let's for real somehow. wrap it wrap up it this up. time. It's been it's been awesome as always. Um. So, uh, yeah. Congrats, seriously, on the book. I know that is that is Father Gregory says it best. You know, that's how it must feel. Indeed. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. It's always a, it's always great chatting with you, Jake. Yep. Cool. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. God bless you, brother. See. You.